Today, we have another podcast at Anatara Medicine. I have a very special guest with me is Dr. Joseph Swishenberger, aka Dr. Swish. Uh, he likes to go by Swish with his colleagues and friends. Um, and we want to talk about a very innovative and a very exciting treatment for cancer uh, known as hyperthermia. And some of the the more advanced ways of using hyperthermia in the clinical setting. Um, Dr. Swish is a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon and a clinical scientist who has earned international recognition for his work in extracorporeal gas exchange in the treatment of severe respiratory failure. His research has focused upon novel therapies for the treatment of diseased and damaged lungs, including the work on artificial lungs. Dr. Swish served as the Johnson Wright Professor and Chairman of the University of Kentucky College of Medicine Department of Surgery for the past 12 years, for 12 years, sorry, uh, leading a department of more than 120 surgeons, scientists, and residents, and nearly 160 staff members. He stepped down as chair in 2019, and now he's focusing his efforts on education and research. Um, Dr. Swish sees one of his roles as being a catalyst in the development um, of cross-fertilization, that is uh, the pairing of surgeons with physiologists, bioengineers, neonatologists, radiologists, and others that focus on translational science and medical research and some of the novel approaches that'll carry them forward from the bench to the bedside. Um, another role he has relished throughout his career is as a teacher and mentor to numerous medical students, interns, and residents. Um, he's developed a model for teaching and assessing residents in the operating room that helps guide faculty and resident interaction in the OR and designates a resident's earned level of autonomy for a given procedure. Um, so he's had this model developed called the Swish Me. Okay, that's an interesting name, uh, model, and adapted into a phone app known as Simple, S-I-M-P-L, uh, the Society for Improving Medical Professional Learning. Uh, the Simple Collaborative is a nonprofit educational, and that involves quality improvement, uh, and it's a consortium focused on investigating and developing tools, curricula, policies to improve the training of physicians. Um, he serves as the chair of Simple Steering Committee, and he's a member of the Simple Ambassador Committee. Dr. Swish has authored and co-authored more than 400 peer-reviewed publications, 77 book chapters, and seven books. He holds five patents and has several patents pending. So we have a very versed and pedigree professional here to speak to us about hyperthermia. Um, and he has uh, served on several NIH study sections, and he was the immediate past president of the American Society of for Artificial Internal Organs, ASAIO, and he is the editor emeritus of the ASAIO Journal. Dr. Swish, it's an honor and a privilege. Please take it away. Well, Muhammad, that's quite a mouthful. Actually, the reason we're here today is not to talk about the past, but to talk about the future. What we've been working on is this multidisciplinary effort to develop a system to develop hyperthermia which is high heat to the entire body. I started this journey about almost 30 years ago with Dr. Roger Vertries, 
who is a PhD and a perfusionist that we worked together when I was doing cardiac surgery. I then developed an intense interest in general thoracic surgery where lung cancer was the leading cause of death in men and women in the United States today. In fact, it still is. Lung cancer is the number one leading cause of cancer death. So we thought, how can we best address cancers on, in which surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, and now immunotherapy have been exhausted? We all know that those are highly effective in the right choice of patients. But we also know that there's times when they just become ineffective. Mm -hmm. And there is a window between that lack of, in, of effectiveness and unfortunately death that we have an opportunity to perhaps help patients live longer and suffer less. So it was in this idea that uh, Dr. Vertries, during his studies as an experimental pathologist, defined the fact that there is a window in which normal cells can tolerate high heat and cancer cells often cannot tolerate it at all. Cancer cells grow rapidly. They are undifferentiated. They don't retain all the characteristics of the tissues they were supposed to be. So as they grow rapidly, they lose a lot of the adaptive mechanisms that we evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in order to be able to live in this atmosphere and in this environment. The key is, is between 41 degrees centigrade and 43 degrees centigrade. That window is a period of, of heat that a normal cell, even though it gets hot to be sure, but it can tolerate it. Whereas a cancer cell, it may die, it may develop programmed cell death, apoptosis, or it simply may retard its growth. Those three results are desirable if you're treating cancer. So we hit upon the idea that you wanna deliver heat to the entire body. Now there's been dozens of attempts in the past to deliver heat to the body. Local heat, local perfusion, radiant heat, external heating, water baths, even, even induced uh, microwave. Peat baths, body, yeah, a lot of different ways to do it. Yes, sir. But the way we do it is unique. Uh, you, you talked about my expertise with gas exchange and respiratory failure using a technique called ECMO. Well, that principle uh, we applied to the idea of delivering heat. If you can deliver oxygen in the blood, you can also deliver heat. So we used a modified, simplified circuit in order to take blood from the venous side of the body, heat the blood up to a temperature that allows us to raise the body heat to 42 degrees centigrade. And what is that in Fahrenheit? It's just for the people who wanna convert quickly. Ah, well, it sounds high. It's 107.6. Yeah. Okay. Now that's far higher than a normal fever that you've, be, you've experienced as a child or an adult. Normally 102.5, 103 degrees Fahrenheit as a fever is quite high. 107.6 is a stretch. Mm -hmm. And so we have to heat the blood in order to get there. But we've done studies over two decades now to show that a normal cell, a normal human, normal tissue can tolerate 42 degrees centigrade. Now, we're, we spent decades developing a system that is so well tuned that we can target that temperature within plus or minus 0.2 degrees centigrade. 
Wow. I'll, say, I'll say that again. We've refined it to where we can keep the temperature within plus or minus 0.2 degrees centigrade and tightly control the temperature. That's very tight. That's a yeah. really tight window. Well, it took us decades to do it, to be frank. And, and then we also decided that when we're heating the blood to that degree, we may incite inflammatory mediators or we may cause in the uh, release of different vasoactive proteins. So we decided that we would dialyze those um, undesirable products off and be able to have a sorbent in the system. So we also added a sorbent to suck off a filter. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, we added a, a very small uh, simplified dialysis unit to keep the electrolytes and the pH in balance. Mm -hmm. So we do really three things. We heat the blood very tightly. We have a dialysis unit and we have a sorbent. We've recently decided to add a small oxygenator or gas exchanger so we can control the CO2 and the pH. Mm -hmm. So I hope I'm, I'm communicating that we have a very tightly controlled set of devices that can allow us to heat the blood to exactly 42 degrees centigrade and also keep it from developing uh, toxins or inflammatory mediators while we heat the blood. What is the name of this procedure? Well, we had to come up with a, uh, because this is so unique, we came up with a unique title. We call it hyperthermic extracorporeal applied tumor therapy or heat. Hmm. And that means hyperthermic, we heat the blood. Extracorporeal, we take the blood out of the body and heat it up. We apply it to those with advanced tumors that are unresponsive to other therapies. Very cool. So heat, H-E-A-T-T, -T, instead of one T. Okay. Awesome. And then the, and then the, the, Methodologies ran by Verthermia. Is that the the overarching? Um, That's correct. In, 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 in honor of my coworker, Dr. Vertries, it was named Verthermia, and that's the name of the company. And our company has uh, put together different FDA-approved components in a unique way in order to be able to deliver this high temperature in the safest manner possible. That's awesome. Where what are the primary indications of using heat, um, and where have you found the most success in this methodology of using hyperthermia? Well, even though hyperthermia per se or heat heat high temperature have been around for decades, our technique is unique. So we had to identify a patient population in which we thought it was most efficacious. We've done uh, FDA phase one studies in advanced lung cancer in which case we thought we demonstrated safety and implied efficacy, which means it was safe to do, and it looked like we made a difference. In fact, the patients on, on our first lung study uh, lived considerably longer than the patients that were the con control group. How much longer? Well, in that limited study, we demonstrated that the patients were able to live uh, 450 days on average, versus 87 days on average for the control. So that was a select group and they did considerably better. They simply lived an average of more than a year. This is terminal though, stage four, right? Yes. Okay, okay. Cancers, advanced cancers on which nothing else is, is effective. 
That's really important to, yeah, definitely to highlight that because we're not just talking about early stage. We're talking about very advanced stage. Very advanced stage. Yeah. Now, the, that doesn't mean everybody achieves that. That means an average. So there's some patients that we really don't help at all. It just doesn't seem to matter. There's another percentage of patients that we help some, and uh, you can de demonstrate some effect, but again, it's hard to brag about. But we have a somewhere between, somewhere around 35, 40% of our patients have a response that does result in what appears to be quite meaningful uh, additional survival. Now, I, read, I said those numbers because those were, were preliminary studies. In our recent experience, we think we've been able to identify a way to tighten up our entry criteria to achieve outcomes far better than that. Hmm. Um, but we got to get there. This is still a fairly new procedure, and we're still learning. After we did the lung trial, we then did an ovarian trial where we took patients with advanced ovarian cancer and subjected them to either one or more treatments with our heat therapy. Mm -hmm. And again, we demonstrated safety and efficacy, which means we showed that it was safe and that the patients seemed to live longer. In fact, it looked like they lived about twice as, two times longer than the control group. Any side effects? Anything that you've noted? Side effects is a term often applied to drug therapy because you're taking drugs that cause side effects while you're looking for the good effects of the drug. This is a, a treatment that lasts about three to four hours because we have to heat the blood slowly. Then we maintain a plateau of temperature elevation at 42 degrees centigrade for two hours. Wow. After those two hours, we cool for about 30 to 40 minutes to get the temperature back down to a normal level. So the we managed the patient during that period of time in, an, in a controlled setting, either in an intensive care unit or an operating room with an anesthesiologist. We have a perfusion skilled perfusionist there to manage the circuit. And then we have a managing physician that manages the, the fluid electrolytes and supervises the case. So it is a bit intense to be fair, but on the other hand, we are able to safely do the procedure. And, and when you say side effects, it's mainly an issue of recovering from that um, exposure. The patients do have to take a day or two to recover from that. They're usually in the recovery or in the hospital or in a supervised setting for a day or two. And then by day, usually they go home at the end of day two or day three. Now, because we take care of patients that are so sick from cancer and so close to the end of life, they can be complicated by other issues. Mm -hmm. often, they often they have advanced cancers. Often they're, they're, they've lost a lot of weight. Often they're kind of weak. So we have to be careful not to pick patients that can't tolerate um, the, the physical strain from yeah. the high heat. It's like the concept of hormesis. So it's creating a physiological stressor to induce the body's immune system almost to kind of um, attack the cancer in a, in a way. Uh, what's your, yeah. Exists. We have the same concept. We do think we rev up the immune response. What we can't, what we can't really do with just heating the body, we can't control the immune response. That's what immunotherapy tries to do.
That's awesome. Um, it sounds like you are dialing in in terms of, of like criterion. What would be the model, you know, criterion or patient that you would think, okay, this is definitely not a slam dunk, but very high chance of there being a, a you know, clinical effect um, in terms of, you know, staging cancer, in terms of comorbidities, any other things going on? What would be like your ideal um, for the greatest chance of success in terms of criterion? Muhammad, this is, we're always trying to learn. And yeah. when as we learn, we try to get others to teach us what they have learned. Mm -hmm. So we have evolved as we've been treating patients with this therapy. Our goal is to address patients that are hospice eligible, that have unresponsive advanced cancer. Now that's kind of a broad term and it's meant to be because every specific cancer has its um, period of time when maybe surgery could work, maybe radiation could work, maybe chemotherapy could work, and maybe immunotherapy could work. So we're trying to identify those patients that have exceeded the standard of care. Mm -hmm. And when they hit that wall to where they've exceeded the standard of care and are unresponsive, we want, we're trying to catch that window before they get too uh, weak or too ravaged by cancer to be able to tolerate the therapy. So we look for patients that are in that window. They need to be able to walk down a hallway. They, they need to be able to care for themselves and, and they need to have uh, no pr major problems with other organs uh, so that they can function. So therefore, if you think of that as the ideal patient, then you look at the contraindications. Why wouldn't we do a patient? Exactly. Right? So we wouldn't do a patient if they have brain mats, because once the tumor's spread to the brain, it's quite advanced, and we, we worry about uh, whether or not they can tolerate the heat because of the brain mats. A uh, recent stroke, a recent heart attack, uncontrolled uh, bleeding. These are things that you go, oh, wow, yeah, I don't want to treat that. that they wouldn't tolerate it. Um, uncontrolled organ failure an active systemic infection such as sepsis, or if they have so much tumor in their lungs, they have trouble breathing. We also have found that if patients can't get up and walk to the bathroom or walk down a hall, if they're totally bedridden, that's, that, this is a bit of a stress for those patients that are that weak. We also found that patients that are of excessive age. Now, I'm over 21 to be fair, but if a patient is over 80, as we've learned from COVID, in that age group, their immune response doesn't respond well. And that was the patient population that initially was doing so poorly with COVID. Mm -hmm. And we learned from that. We learned both from COVID and from our treatment that patients over 80, it's a, it's a real stress for them. But there's a lot of patients under 80 uh, that, that can easily tolerate hyperthermia as they in the, the journey towards systemic cancer. Now, we also have relative contraindications. Now, what does that mean? That means we have to think about it. That means a group of physicians that are experienced who know the patient have to think about, mm, we know this isn't perfect, but can they tolerate it? And things like that, or if they're on uh, blood thinners that can't be reversed, or if they're on a, a, a drug that has weakened their blood vessels to where they may tend to bleed, or if they already have major organ dysfunction, uh, said heart, liver, kidney. And if, for instance, uh, they received recent 
high dose chemo. Well, recent high dose chemo means they, they've had a hit already and we don't wanna stress them out further until they recover from that recent chemo. Okay. And, and then uh, finally, we just, we have a very exhaustive discussion with the family and the patient to let them know that this is still a new procedure. We don't, we haven't done thousands to where we have a very uh, firm understanding of all the implications. We've done dozens of patients to where we feel comfortable that we, we can do this safely. And what would you say um, is the la like the window post chemo or post radiation where you could consider this? Like how much time would need to have passed for like a washout period um, before considering this? That's a super good question without a specific answer because every patient's different. Every patient has a different cancer. Everybody has a different journey sure. in terms of therapy. And what what I would say is any patient who has has had conversations with their oncologist or their radiation oncologist or their natural uh, their integrative oncologist or their naturalist, do you think I'm starting to get to where you don't expect? other therapies to predictably work. And if you, if, if you get there, now you're starting to hope that treatments work rather than know they should work. And I think once you get to that point, that would be when you would consider systemic hyperthermia. Now we hope mm -hmm. that as we gain more experience, we can move it further up the spectrum of starting it earlier. But right now, we don't wanna interfere with standard of care. Standardive care has been has taken medicine decades to develop, and there's experience with that. There's been uh, clinical trials, and we all know that. We don't want to discourage people from getting the therapy that would be recommended, but we definitely want people to notice that as they end the responsiveness to those standard therapies, this should be considered. Okay. In, and of course, there's always patient consent on when a patient would be willing to do this um, and or uh, go down alternate courses of therapy besides conventional courses. In that setting, um, do you consider patients in that, in that group who are, you know, let's say they don't want to consider standard of care or some of, some of the, the more um, tested options in the clinical setting, would, would those still be considered as long as they met the criteria you mentioned? Absolutely, Muhammad. We, we are physicians. We, yeah. we respect uh, a, a patient to be able to have informed consent. And if they don't want uh, to agree to what many would consider standard therapy, of course, we are willing to consider them for alternate forms of therapy. Alternative medicine, integrative oncology, there's a lot of different fields to where strict standard of care is not necessarily uh, the pathway because patients help guide their therapy. So we are very understanding of that and we're perfectly willing to talk to any patient that wants to consider this instead of um, what many would consider standard of care. But I'm a full professor of cardiothoracic surgery in a major academic institution. I'll, I think standard of care should always be on the forefront of any discussion. Of course, uh, informed consent is the key, obviously. Um, I would like to stress upon certain things in your methodology in this procedure that are very important, namely the temperature target that you emphasize. That seems to be critical. 
namely why is that temperature target really important and why is it that your procedure um, is different from potentially other options that are available internationally, like let's say in Germany and elsewhere, where people are doing some form of inpatient hyperthermia um, and what you know, maybe the filtration system and the other mechanisms you're using in addition to the hyperthermia that make your methodology different? Well, that's an insightful question. Hyperthermia is a big blanket term for hot, hot or heat. And all of those different techniques impart heat to parts of the body in an attempt to affect a treatment on cancer. The, diff the main difference between our therapy that makes it so unique versus the other forms of hyperthermia is that we heat the blood. We not only heat the blood directly, we control the temperature tightly, and then we scrub the blood, if you want to say that. We scrub it of inflammatory mediators, and we also dialyze it to keep all the fluid electrolytes balanced, and we control the pH. And if you control all those aspects of flow, and temperature control and the constituents in the blood to where you're not disturbing the electrolytes, you, you accomplish what we're out to do. There's no other methodology that does that. All the rest impart some type of radiant heat or heating like the, from the sun or heating from a heat lamp or heating from a, a hot bath in order to conduct, it's called conductance. The heat passes through the tissues. But it, all of our tissues are nourished by blood, the bone marrow, the brain, the back of the, the, back of the heart, uh, all these areas that are sort of hidden uh, from other therapies that conduct heat, we perfuse, we send blood to those areas and heat those areas and achieve the target temperature of 42 degrees centigrade consistently. Okay, and that, that temperature target, that's the that's the sweet spot for cancer. Is that necessary? Anything below that you haven't found to be as effective? The window between 41 and 43 degrees has a graduated kind of dose response curve, but 42 is the, seems to be the sweet spot. If you overheat, you can start to get um, effects such as sleepiness. You might even see at the super high temperature seizures. Uh, in the past, decades ago, they saw all that, but we haven't seen any of that in recent in the recent experience. But if you go too low, which we think is below 42 degrees, mm -hmm. you don't get nearly the effect and the cancers are much more thermotolerant or tolerant of that level of heat. Okay, that's really insightful. Um, and is it literally the entire blood being um, heated, like in this four to six hour procedure, or is it how much percentage of the blood is being heated during this op operation? Well, we, we can't heat all the blood at the same time, or you wouldn't yeah, have any blood. So exactly. What we do is we uh, circulate about 20% of the cardiac output. Your okay. heart puts out, let's say, about five liters per minute. Mm -hmm. And so we would then circulate about 20% or a liter, plus or minus, depending on the size. Okay. But we're trying to, so we circulate all the blood over the, over the two hours of our target temperature, but we don't do it all at once. We do 20% at a time and we continuously circulate it and keep it, we heat it. And then once we hit the plateau, it levels off. 
Got it. So, and in terms of how many times a patient could do this, is it just a one-time thing and you gauge the response within a certain window of uh, whether or not they've responded or how many times could a patient theoretically do this in a given duration of time? In the previous studies that we've done, we've done studies where we just did one treatment and we've done studies where we've done multiple. Both appear to be effective. What we don't know is how many times is how many times is ideal. Right now, in our current experience, where we're treating patients, we are recommending one treatment, and then we see the response. They may be able to start on uh, chemotherapy again. They may be able to start on immunotherapy again. They may be able to move into uh, integrative medical therapies or our naturalistic therapies. So there's a lot of options once you get somebody. Uh, to respond and have them live longer, there's a lot of options that you open up. And one of the options we open up is to be able to treat them with hyperthermia a second or a third time. But for right now, uh, we, we recommend the first time to see how well it works. That's a very fascinating point you just brought up in terms of sensitizing an end-stage patient to potentially treatments that previously were not effective or they may have been resistant to. That's really I think that's a that's a slam dunk right there. Well, um, Dr. Murtry studied that when he, in his experimental pathology studies, and he he coined the term thermopotentiation. Mm -hmm. Thermo heat potentiates other therapies. So we have been able to show in tissue culture thermopotentiation. What we've not been able to do, as so far, is to couple hyperthermia with other uh, treatments as a uh, adjunctive treatment. The reason is, is we wanna show that hyperthermia alone is effective before we start complicating the issue with other therapies that are coupled with it. But we do plan to be doing that in the near future. So stay tuned, that's yeah. next. Yes, um, and you know, many of my colleagues, Dr. Nasha Winters and Dr. Paul Anderson have recommended um, your services and um, they're they're opening up the promise of uh, some potential in stage three, stage four cancers and beyond. Um, the other exciting avenue is where do you feel the other applications of of this treatment modality will be in the future for other other diseases or potentially infections? Um, do you see that potential there or? Do you feel like it's only limited to cancer in this um, window of, of methodology? Where do you see it going? Well, the genesis of my interest was lung cancer because mm -hmm. I'm a thoracic surgeon. So obviously, since uh, thoracic lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in men and women in the United States today, cancer is the second leading cause of death in, in the United States today. Obviously, mm -hmm. I'm focused on cancer. Uh, but there are other avenues that it's been have been explored. Early on, it was used for treatment of HIV before the more effective drugs became available. We've also shown that there's other viruses that seem to be very sensitive to this type of heat. In fact, every time you get the flu, you get a fever that tends to discourage the propagation of the virus. So I think that uh, different viral illnesses, we even considered it for COVID-19. Uh, the good news is, is that COVID-19 therapies and ECMO proved efficacious enough to where 
more unproven therapies such as hyperthermia never really kind of reached the forefront. Uh, but we were on standby. We knew that there may be an opportunity for this in viral illnesses, but um, I think the future could very well hold using hyperthermia for viruses, but for right now, we're actually treating patients with advanced cancers and helping people live longer. This is really exciting to hear because a lot of patients with chronic complex illnesses like Lyme disease, Bartonella, um, they're flying halfway across the world for potentially um, less advanced versions of what you're summarizing here in terms of all the type parameters that you're controlling in, in a hyperthermia um, session. Um, and I feel like this is like really exciting to hear that there's promise for viral infections. And what would you think in terms of other tick-borne diseases or vector-borne uh, infections? You think there could be promise there with this type of treatment? Mohammed, the exciting thing about hyperthermia is that it's a physiologic assault, right? It is an environmental physiologic stress mm -hmm. on different uh, illnesses, cancers, viruses, other infections, and those particular pathogens or infectious agents have never seen these kind of temperatures before. So they very, may very well not be able to tolerate them, and they may very well, their whole ability to create disease may be altered by this type of temperature. I'm going to leave that up to you young guys. I've been working on this for 30 years, and my goal is to have it uh, show safety and efficacy for cancer for right now. But as you know, different therapies take decades for people to learn how to apply them. I was in the early days of ECMO when we were just treating newborns with, uh, with ARDS and with uh, pers persistent fetal circulation. It's evolved now to where ECMO is in multiple venues in terms of neonate pediatrics, adults, respiratory failure, cardiac failure, circulatory support, acute wow. cardiac arrest, bridge to transplant. So I've lived through seeing a technology go from one particular focus to where it's used in multiple venues. And I see this as being the same. I think this is at the genesis of a whole nother therapy option for many diseases. But on the other hand, I don't wanna oversell what we've done. I'm so excited that we've been able to show that we can impact cancer and actually alter the natural history of the end of end stages of cancer that right now that's my focus. Yeah. Which otherwise, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, in, in those late stages, the patients have no other options, um, available, or like you said, they're just hoping and they don't even realize that this exists. Um, and I think, the first step is, you know, education, 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 getting getting the awareness out there. I really um, am grateful for your time and for you to, to share what you do with us today. Um, you know, coming from a, a background in integrative medicine and um, extracorporeal usage of ozone in a procedure called EBU, so extracorporeal blood ozonation oxygenation, I feel like we were just meant to collide and meant to, to connect. Um, and I feel this is a very promising modality 
um, that patients are going to be looking for. And, and hopefully we can start educating, getting the word out there about it. Well, Mohammed, you started off talking about how much I was interested in education and students and being able to come up with innovative uh, educational techniques. Well, I look for somebody young, energetic, thoughtful, and on the cutting edge of integrative oncology to be able to help us integrate this therapy into what you do and to be able to expand the application and to be able to better understand exactly which patients we can help and which patients we should back away from. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what this is all about. And we look for you to partner with us mm -hmm. to help us learn how to better take care of the desperately ill cancer patient. Absolutely. Um, it's exciting and I'm definitely looking forward to collaborating more, learning more from you. Um, and hopefully this is one of many uh, interviews and podcasts that we, we share together in explaining some of the novel ways of combating immune dysregulation and, you know, understanding the terrain of the body, as Dr. Nisha Winters would call it, um, as cancer is not just a genetic disease, you know, that's an old paradigm and sh shifting the terrain with things like hyperthermia has proved to be a way to disprove that old paradigm um, and shifting the, the cellular health, the cellular environment around the cancer could be pinnacle in um, extending life or even reversing disease. Well, um, Muhammad, you just simply said it better than I did. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we both, you know, we tag team well. I'm, I'm the Scotty Pippen to the Michael Jordan here. Um, but I feel like it's it's opening a new door in terms of understanding cancer, understanding complex chronic illness and infections. Um, you know, as you stated, hyperthermia is a very old, uh, nuanced uh, medical technique, and there are many ways to do it. You can even in, induce um, a toxin like lipopolysaccharide, and that induces a fever, and that's been done for over 50, 60 years now. Um, in a hospital setting, but um, this is kind of the next evolution of hyperthermia. And I'm, I'm really excited and privileged that you were here to share it with us. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Dr. Swish. And this has been another podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mansoor. I'm a naturopathic doctor at Anatara Medicine. We thank you for tuning in and please look at the show notes below in the description for how to find more information from Dr. Swish and I about this therapy and how to contact and, and pursue more uh, information. Um, thank you. Thank you again. 